All right, welcome to another episode of the Tim Wendelboe Coffee Podcast. Today I have a very special guest with me. And we are actually not going to talk about coffee today. We are more going to talk about uh, how to build a career, uh, brand building, uh, and business in general. Because I have a guest here that has inspired me a lot uh, during my young years, at least, and also now today. And you might have heard some of his work already if you're listening to this podcast, because it is my uncle, Mr. Jens Wendelbo. Welcome. Thank you, Tim. <laughs> nice to be here. So Jens, uh, maybe you should update our listeners who you are, what you do. Well, um, first of all, I live in, in New York. I, I'm in America, and uh, I used to live in Norway. Yes. But then I emigrated and became an American last year. And um, I'm a composer, a conductor, musician, inspirational <laughs> teacher, professor. Yeah. And and so I do a lot of writing of music and. Um, do a lot of talks at universities about career building as you were saying i have a motivational speech that's called you can do it oh nice yep yeah and um the way that came about was that i saw there was a lot of professors around at universities that had phds but never been in the trenches and never been on the road with, with great artists or, or played broadway shows or anything and i was wondering how they were inspiring their kids to make it in the music business because it's not that simple no and uh, a lot of the conversations that I give you can see in the audience which two or three people that has that internal flame that they can't kill that they have to follow yeah even though everybody says all oh, the music business is over it's no it's not <laughs> There's always a niche where you can find something to do, where you can make a living and you can be happy and do your thing. Yeah. If you're good at making those, um, what should I say, um, choices that you need to make in order to get up in the morning, uh, write invoices, yeah. be good with your taxes, all these pragmatic things that you have to do in order to kind of survive in a business that's full of crazy people. It's like when I when people ask me if they should open a coffee shop or not, I always say, do you like working with coffee? And if they say yes, I say, then you shouldn't because you're <laughs> going to end up in an office doing the invoices, you know, all the paperwork. Right. You're not going to work with coffee. No, no, exactly. So you have to be able to deal with all these things that are not necessarily the nearest to your heart, but, yeah. but it's a necessity in order to be close to what is near to your heart all right but let's track back a little bit and maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh your career in general like don't give us the 10 hour uh <laughs> no i'm gonna <laughs> story, try to but, uh, make the short version yeah well i started I'm, I'm from the waldorf school um system in in norway and after that i went to the royal academy of music uh very young while i was there i got hired into nrk the norwegian radio broadcasting corporation to do both radio and television work uh, first of all, as a trombone player, I was going to be a classical trombone player in the symphony orchestra. That was the goal. Hmm. Um, ended up changing that as I went down the line. It became more and more popular music, rhythm stuff, and, and jazz, for that matter. Um, then I 
After many years of television conducting TV shows uh, for some of the famous acts that we had in Norway, um, I became um, Donna Summer's music director. Wow. And uh, has been that for 22 years until she passed away a few years ago. Um, and in the process of that, I also became the blood, sweat, and tears horn trombone player for eight years. And then a whole entourage of famous names that I played with, among others, mo most famous ones, probably Aretha Franklin in Carnegie Hall, of all things. Wow. <laughs> and it was kind of like, uh, yeah. So, so it's been a lot of uh, interesting stars and uh, interesting episodes and tours and a lot of writing. I've written some film scores, uh, a lot of arrangements, orchestrations for records for other people. Norwegian Monroes is maybe oh the, yeah the famous the, ones from the eighties yes yeah. the eighty I think it was eighty six that came out and they sold about half a million records in Norway which is the new record so to speak in yeah. Norway of selling records um, and many others as there was a time I went into a gas station in Norway and they used to have cassettes. Yeah. Like racks, and I was playing on every single cassette oh, really? that was on the, the <laughs> gas station. I was like, "Dude, you got to find something else to do." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's pretty awesome for uh, like a uh, classically and jazz schooled uh, musician to be able to do that. Yeah, and I think it it just turned that way because I was good at writing arrangements and and uh, like kind of like doing more than one thing at the same time. Yeah, you have to kind of be a juggler and you have to be. A mindset where you're willing to say yes to I, I said yes to everything in the beginning yeah and then little by little you kind of hone in what you want to do what 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 you find you're good at compared to what other people think you're not so good at then, yeah. then you kind of steer your direction little by little it narrows down and then you you specialize more and more this is very interesting that they're saying because uh, I remember you specifically telling me when I was a teenager, I was hanging out a lot uh, in your house and, you know, in, especially in the summer because your house is really nice. Um, and uh, I remember you specifically told me that uh, it's always better to say yes. Uh, you know, the, the person asking you should be a nice guy until he proves the opposite. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Whereas uh, you always said, like in Norway, the norm is that you're an asshole until well, you prove the opposite. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, that's the mentality thing, and I found that uh, being yes person. Uh, I remember when I got to the U.S. in the beginning, there was a guy who called me, and he said, "I've heard great things about you, and I'd like to offer you a club job." And oh, that's nice. Thank you for calling. You know, he took the time to call me, and you know, mm. of course, you have to be positive. Yeah. And then he started saying um, a little bit about the job. He was telling me it was a blues club and the pay wasn't that great. And I'm like listening and I'm hearing my stomach is starting to nut up and I'm hearing that, okay, the beer is warm and the pizza <laughs> is cold and it's a rowdy place and my slide will be pulled out of my horn and yeah. I lose my teeth. You know. And then you drive there and you spend money on that. But since he was so nice to call me, it was not in my place to tell him how crazy the suggestion was to ask me to come down there for little money so I turned the arrow around and I said to him this sounds very interesting if you can offer me $450 gigs this year which was make me $20,000 it's not even near what I need to feed my family yeah. but if he's the guy that can give me 400 gigs of $50 this year <laughs> You're the man. Yeah. So then it, it becomes his problem, not my problem to say no. Yeah. Because obviously he couldn't do that. Yeah. So 
but thank you for calling. Yeah, you know? yeah that's a like, good way to do it. Yeah, I've actually done a lot of uh, strange jobs in my career, uh, especially in the beginning. I said yes to everything like uh, you also did. And yep. uh, I think uh, even though a lot of those jobs were didn't really uh, give me anything kind of directly in terms of career moves or anything, at least I gained a lot of experience. Right. And, uh, you know, that's probably one of the reasons why I'm able today to have a bigger overview of what I do and uh, because I've, I have so much experience with many different things right. uh, and it's easy for me to to do events and stuff like that because I've done it so many times now. Right. No, I, I used to say to my kids all the time, I want you to take a summer job, not because they needed money or anything, but I needed them to have the experience of find out, finding out what they shouldn't be doing when they grow yeah. up. It's to learn how to say, no, I don't want to do that. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's always what I tell people when they go study and they say, I'm not sure if this is uh, my career. I said, well, at least you will find out mm-hmm. whether, it, whether mm-hmm. you like it or not, you know, so you always And the accumulative um, body of all your experiences, good or bad, is your education. Yeah. Whether you paid for it or not. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I remember also, because uh, I was a teenager, uh, in, I, I, I remember a lot from these teenage years, and I was a little bit, uh, in your eyes at least, I was very negative. But in my mind, I was just critical. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I advise people that have that critical sense to appear that you're positive, Yeah. even though you are critical. Um, you can say what you mean, but you don't have to mean what you say kind of idea. If, if you catch my drift. <laughs> this is what I struggle with every day. I, I, I want to be positive all the time, but I, sometimes it's very hard work because you, you do see mistakes and everything. And I, I do know a couple of stories from uh, some musicians that have been working with you that you can be extremely strict and quality focused. Right. And, and I, I don't see that as a negative thing because I'm up against the wall towards the producers. Mm. And the money men, you know, the people that brings in the money that makes this project possible, they are expecting a certain amount of minutes of music to be produced per hour. Yeah. And if people are goofing around and not doing their homework or, or can't cut it, then it's going to end up in my lap. And then I have to answer for that somewhere. I also have a very high quality threshold for myself. Yeah. I demand a lot of myself. And I think when people work with me, if you can't handle that I'm demanding stuff from you equally that I'm demanding for myself, you shouldn't be working with me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's that's a good point actually. So 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 a lot of great musicians that um, have criticized me are sometimes the people that have come out with the um, negative thing about me because I am a pretty (coughs) consistent guy and they couldn't handle it so they don't get the second call yeah and then of course they turn negative it doesn't mean that they're not great it just means that in in the situations I'm being asked to do they're not the right people yeah yeah, I do actually find some parallels to my company there because we have a certain standard that we want to deliver to our customers and, and guests. And 
if our uh, workers and our team doesn't deliver, then they need to, uh, you know, they need to, I need to let them know. And, and before I used to yell at them, you know, like uh, yelling angry, never, angry man. Yeah, that never, never Today works. I'm more like, I, I try to explain why it's important that they deliver right. every single time, you know, because that's our business. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it creates that profile of your company and, and the quality of what you're demanding is what also people expect when they're receiving in the other end. Yeah. And if, if one person's are not doing the link is breaking, then you start to lose clients and all kinds of things can happen. And you never know who's listening. It could be a high up person in the hierarchy of the world of coffee. Yeah. Although I think there's nobody higher than you at this point. Oh, no, no, <laughs> there's many. <laughs> There are many. <laughs> yeah, there are many, and and uh, if the rumors come to the wrong person, uh, whether it's in in informal circumstances or formal circumstances, it will always be in the back of somebody's mind, and they can make judgment calls on that, which is not necessarily good for you. Yeah, I also uh, have one thing in mind always. Like I try always to be, you know, uh, nice and tidy with uh, everything I do, and I think that's uh, one thing that. Also, you and my father has always done like yep. uh, very kind of sincere people and professional. But I also remember my grandmother, which is your mother. Yep. She once told me, "You can't make friends with everyone." No, nope, you so, can't. So don't even try. No, <laughs> no, absolutely. And she was very right about that. And always be on time. Yeah. Oh, she was mad at me when I came late one day. Holy moly. I think I was nine years old and I showed up late. And she <laughs> gave me the... Re and and the, the result of that is I always have that in the back of my mind. Don't waste other people's time. Yeah. And that was very sincere to her that, that we followed that rule. And I think uh, both my brother, your father, and, and I grew up with that. So we never try to waste people's time. And then the other thing that I remember my father told me, I actually ended up working in his forklift uh, business in Denmark oh. as a young guy, uh, picking apart engines and, and putting them back together and learning the skill. Um, he basically always said to his workers, do not come to me with problems. Come to me with solutions. Yeah, that's a good thing. And uh, once in a while, he didn't go to the office because he needed to, you know, stipulate things or come up with new concepts. And he couldn't be at the office doing that because everybody came to him with solutions, hopefully, all the time. <laughs> uh, so he then stayed at home. And I was always asking him, are you not going to your office today? I mean, it was like baffled with the thought that, you, don't you have a job? you got to go. And later on, I more and more understood that the job is not necessarily being at the office. It's, it's wherever you are all the time. Yeah. So you, you're never off, actually. Yeah. Um, neither in my business or your business. We always think about the, the ways to, to run a concept or, or a new concept or thinking a new configuration or a new idea to break through a whole new or, or change things. You know. and, and that's the thing that always happens whether you're in the office or not. Mm. And sometimes it's, it's a drag to be in the office because there's too many other people bothering you with you know, everyday things that you need to think bigger than that and higher than that and yeah. further away from that. So I learned that lesson through my dad that no, the work happens. And the reason places we sometimes. do it is because of the inner flame, I guess. You yes. You have a drive that really you want to get stuff done. It's not work. It's like you right. just want to create something. Other people can do the day-to-day -day thing. Yeah. You know, and that's the goal to always delegate to people you trust in order to have you being the guy who thinks the new concepts, whatever they might be, and then have all the people uh, do the 
concepts. Yeah. So uh, when I worked with a, a very famous Norwegian television host called Domberga Akira, yeah, yeah. Um, at the there was a lurd on a TV show that went on every two weeks, so on so often. Um, when we had the meetings with him, he would always come into the room and throw a whole lot of balls up in the air in terms of ideas. Then he would leave the room. And it was the team sitting there's job to pick up all the balls <laughs> and make them happen. And it was a, it was a tough concept. And, it, and I think also that's why that TV show became so popular because yeah. he had a great team, great people that could really deal with all the, the, the weirdness of what we were going to be doing. And uh, when he came back, it was taken care of. Yeah. Yeah, oh, that's a good. Uh, I'm terrible at delegating. I'm I'm trying to learn, and uh, you know, I think you get better at it. Yeah. As My wife age. has the same issue, but she <laughs> also getting better at it. Yeah, it's like you have to kind of trust people. Yeah, for sure. And then at the same time, you have an, uh, a vision about that person, how much they can do and how much little or, or little they can do. And the, the problem is that you always tend to think on the littler side, instead of try to surprise me. I always say to people when they come to me with questions about uh, you know, whether it's a writing assignment or, or, or playing assignment, I, I try to say, surprise me. Mm. Surprise me. Show me something that I wasn't expecting. Yeah. And uh, that, that gives them the freedom in order to go in, uh, further than I maybe thought that they could go. Mm. And, but if they can't show that, then, then I was right about my assumption that they were limited in, in what they could do, so maybe I shouldn't promote them further than they should be promoted yeah right you mentioned the inner flame thing and uh, i also remember uh you telling me this is also many years ago that uh, when you were on tour because you were touring a lot with the uh, on, on tour buses and everything yeah. yeah and a lot of your fellow musicians would you know do what musicians do they get drunk after the gig and uh, <laughs> they sleep all day but you were sitting in the bus writing music and right i've actually thought about that a lot because uh, my job at least before it involved a lot of traveling i went to kenya to ethiopia mm -hmm. to central america and you know i spent hours in cars and airports and everything and i decided okay let's not waste this time because it's so boring to yeah. be and it's a lot of time yeah it is so i started actually working on the road <laughs> right you know writing and doing you know when you run a business there's always stuff to do but and uh, then it becomes a habit yeah exactly right and so when you sit at, at an airport and you're just watching people walk by you just don't sit there and just watch people walk by you're <laughs> actually doing stuff you know <laughs> yeah i mean and this is uh, one thing uh, that um i had an uh, old employee uh, or an employee who used to work for me, he, he told me once that I was so lucky to have been able to achieve the stuff that I've achieved. And I said, it has nothing to do with luck. No, it has <laughs> not. Absolutely, I'm, you're absolutely great. It has nothing to do with luck. Yeah. There's, well, there's a certain amount of timing involved. And the timing is one of the timing issues that I see people abuse or misuse is when you're in a room full of people the timing of knowing when to come into the room or leave the room is not for everyone. <laughs> they, people are in the middle of the most important conversation of their life would suddenly leave for whatever, you know, descriptive reason, um, and they will miss out. Yeah. Uh, and there's something about that timing and, and having the foresight to see what could possibly happen if I take this a little further yeah. I, I give you a funny little example yeah, that happened it. to me the other day 
uh, we were actually doing a concert in uh, Connecticut for uh, in honor of Mr. Clive Davis. I don't know if you know who Clive yeah, Davis of is. Course, yeah. He's probably one of the most famous record, uh, I shouldn't say producers, but the record... Um, he was the person that made it happen mm. from Bob Dylan and Janis Joplin all the way up to the 90s and even into the, the 2000s actually with artists. Probably shaped my career without me knowing him and him knowing me. Then I met him. And I was actually going to a bathroom at the concert. We had a break. I went to the concert, played my thing, went, went to the bathroom, came out of the bathroom. He was standing outside. Nice. And he was standing there with uh, a couple of his friends. And then I said, well, if I don't ask him now, I will never get the opportunity to ask him. He's close to 90 at this point. Mm. So I asked him if uh, it would be okay to tell him how much he had meant to me in my career because you know when I was 16 I heard Blood Sweat and Tears which is one of the bands that he actually launched through CBS yeah and here I was in Norway listening to this for the first time and, and getting blown away by how great that band was when I was 16 then I go to America a few later years later I'm actually playing in the band yeah. <laughs> as cool one of the that? few trombone players in the world <laughs> one of the three professional trombone playing rock and roll trombone playing jobs and then so when I met him, to me, it was like um, a gratitude. Mm. And he was so nice and so like forward and positive and asked me questions about this and that. And he was so cool. And I had not, I asked him, it would have just been a lost moment. So sometimes, even though you're a little uncomfortable asking, I was uncomfortable asking, yeah, I have to course. admit that. Yeah. Because he's, he's such a big, name in the industry yeah um but i've also learned that you can't be so starstruck that you get numb yeah <laughs> but i guess you're a little bit more used to it than most people sure yeah. because i've been around very famous people i and the, here's the funny thing the most famous person i think i've ever met was also very like sudden happen we were playing in telluride colorado in the winter it's a very high up place yeah, yeah, in, yeah. in America and and there's oxygen masks on the side of the stage because <laughs> yeah it's really if you wow. play and run around you you can faint so we're in there we just came from a long tour and I got up on stage there we all have wireless things and we run around and we memorize all the music and the, and I see this face in the audience and I say I know this face and it was irritating me to the crazy because I I, I knew this face and we were playing and playing and playing and running around and in the last five minutes it dawned on me this is Neil Armstrong oh wow <laughs> and I've been a big fan of aviation and moon landing and all that yeah. stuff since I was a kid so normally we jump off to the side of the stage when the gig is over we take the bow and we, but I jumped down in the audience <laughs> with all my gear and my horn and my my stuff and ran after him he was now turned around and walking out yeah and I come behind him and I tap him on the shoulder and I say, excuse me, I have to ask, are you Mr. Neil Armstrong? Yeah, he was Mr. Neil Armstrong. And then I say, well, would it be possible to ask you to come back and meet the band in our band room? Oh, he would love to. Yeah, that's great. So he comes back, a very, very nice, low-key kind of guy. He comes back in the band and I open the band door and I say, hey guys, please welcome Mr. Neil Armstrong. And they were like, oh my goodness. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, uh, and then we get to talk a little and, and he was such a humble guy. And, and you know, f for me, 
he's probably the biggest star I've ever met and ever will meet. Mm. Uh, Michael Jackson means not that much to me compared to a guy like that. He's <laughs> actually went to the moon and Every, put his everyone the moon. in the world has heard his name, you know. In, yeah, in and, school and, or and, and I'm like, what's the biggest thing that ever happened in my lifetime? Yeah, oh. it was the moon landing, yeah. and we wouldn't even have cell phones today if it wasn't for the moon landing. Yeah. And all the stuff they went through and all that stuff. So he it was such a humble guy. And then I mentioned that I had met Eric Tanberg, the Norwegian uh, aviation guy that was always explaining the moon landing on Norwegian television. And he'd met Eric Tanberg. Oh, really? <laughs> so, oh, you know Eric Tanberg, you know that whole thing. So and the and the last thing I would say about that, one of the reasons he came to the Blood, Sweat and Tears concert was that they had a little cassette player in that little capsule yeah, yeah, yeah. to the moon. And there was a few songs there. Among others, the Blood, Sweat and Tears songs. And what and goes when up? I die, no. No? And when I die, and when I'm dead, and when I'm gone. Nice. And so he had like a relationship to the band. So he was a little bit of a fan of the band, and we were like super fans yeah. of him. You know? So <laughs> it was, you know, and it happens in the stranger situation. But you have to sometimes take that shame or, or the shyness and, and just let it go and yeah. say, I, this, is, this is the moment. And also, uh, it also relates to um, saying yes to everything. Like because you say yes to everything, you get a lot of opportunities. But you are allowed to say no. Yeah, of course. But, uh, but you have to you choose have to be carefully. At least open-minded. Right. And, uh, and you Absolutely. know, you never know what a gig is going to give you. And this is also a lesson that you've taught me that I uh, am notoriously. Uh, not necessarily following, but I'm really bad at charging for my service services. But you told me once that you know it's not you don't have to charge for every service all the time. Right. It really depends on what you're actually asked to do. Right. So sometimes a favor is more important than you know sending that invoice. Right. I actually talk about this at the university for musicians because all musicians have a tendency to say that we've got to do a lot of freebies yeah. in order to get into the business. I viewed that differently as I get older and seeing how it works. And to me, the way it seems to work is that if you say yes to a $50 club and the guy can't provide you with $450 <laughs> in that year, then then you are becoming a $50 club member. Yeah. If so, so you have to put the price tag on you. You have to figure out what am I worth? What what where do I belong in this world and in, in what club? Yeah. And if you say yes to the $100 club, then that's where you belong. If you say yes to the fun, it doesn't mean that you can't do the other things, but in general, that's where you are. Some great musicians in LA, they're the $1,000 club. Yeah. And, and we are all in the different you know, spectrum of that. And then after I say all this for a long time, and we talk about don't take freebies, I said, well, when is it you're going to do a freebie? And they all look at me like I'm crazy, and you just told us we shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> and and I'm saying, yeah, but there might be a situation where you actually could benefit from it. Mm. And what is that situation? And they have no idea what I'm talking about. And they they I say, give me some choices. And nobody comes up with anything reasonable. I said the only reason you should take a, a freebie is when you usually when musicians do something you should have well paid well great music and, and great musicians Th those are the three if you have all three there's a chance you're going to have a great concert yeah most of the times we're two out of three great musicians great music no pay yeah. or bad pay or or great pay lousy musicians great yeah. music i mean they come in all shapes and forms then 
when you see that there's a great amount of musicians and the music is going to be great and you know there's no money in there you take the job because if you if you don't charge anything nobody if you charge something people owe you nothing yeah then they paid you you're done but if you don't charge people owe you something mm. and if they owe you a favor when you want to do your project and you ask them back then you, they don't get money either and yeah. then now suddenly you get a benefit from their great musicianship yeah so that's one of the few reasons that I would do it of course you can always say we always do freebies for you know income for home f homeless cats or I, yeah, I don't yeah. know whatever but I get about 40 of those calls a year and I've had to learn to say that I have two causes I support every year and they are filled <laughs> and but that's the only way I can gracefully back out yeah you know and, and and they mean well but at the same time they always want to pay the guy that delivers the chocolate the flowers or, yeah, exactly. or the tables and the sound and the lighting everybody gets paid mm. but the musicians I'm like this doesn't add up in my brain yeah you know? well I've come to an age where I don't have to say yes to anything anymore because I have my own business that where right. you know it's going well and uh, fortunately but um uh, sometimes I get asked to do stuff and I do it anyway because it gives me something I learn something from it it gives me an experience you know I, right. I feel that I, it's something that I want to do oh, absolutely. just because it's fun or you know so and uh, those jobs are not always paid either <laughs> no so they're not uh, I remember you coming down on one of my rehearsals with the with free coffee Oh yeah, and, that's and true. <laughs> yeah, that was great, you know, and then, and and the, the band members were like in awe, like uh, the people came in there with your coffee, and they were like, "Oh my God, this is so." That was Tim. That that's your nephew. It's like I became famous because of you. <laughs> and there's another situation that you. I'm not sure you know this, but uh, since I met the the band Chicago a couple of times, yeah, yeah, yeah. and we, we played at the same festivals with Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Um, I become a fairly good friend with James Pankow and of course he's one of the originals so is Bobby Lamb or Robert Lamb and who's written a lot of the songs and one day Robert Lamb came over to me I think we were in Stuttgart at that point in Germany he came over to me and said, Jens Wendelbow do you by any chance know this guy <laughs> Tim Wendelbow <laughs> and I'm like are you kidding me that's my nephew that's my son or my brother and yeah he said you know I'm such a fan of, of Tim and, and the coffee and I'm in touch with him and we do this and and then he told me about the time you guys were uh, you showed up at the concert here in, in yeah. outside of Oslo somewhere yeah, yeah. and you delivered uh, the coffee to the whole band and the crew behind the stage and all that stuff and those I know are not the paid jobs. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and, but they're, they're so much fun because yeah, you get to meet people that are a little on the side of your business, but that are generally interested in what you're doing. Yeah. Which means a lot. Yeah, that was a great night. We were three friends. We all love Chicago. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know. What's Rob there not to I, love? I offered Robert to deliver, you know. I, I think we came with like 12 thermoses of different coffees. Right. And uh, we went backstage with it. And, and believe me, they need it because they yeah. were day out and day yeah. in with all the charging and up and down and rigging and yeah and uh, we actually do get a lot of musicians in our store uh, because uh, the days where all musicians are out and about uh, at night getting drunk are a little bit over so uh, yeah. most of them are pretty straight they work hard they tour a lot they right. love drinking coffee uh, yeah. we just had the war on drugs here yesterday actually 
and they were in our store for five hours uh, two days ago there you just go. drinking coffee and having fun so so coffee and music has a lot to do with each other yeah now. yeah for right. sure what's your relationship with coffee since we're on that uh, subject my um, relationship with the coffee is that i drink coffee every morning yeah <laughs> that's it <laughs> i have i can only have one cup a day because i think i have i i fell in that famous uh uh, pan with the energy water yeah, yeah. when I was a kid. You're and like uh, Obelix in... Uh, yes, I'm yeah. like Obelix in Asterix. Yeah. Um, and uh, if I have more than one cup of coffee, I get so hyper I can't get anything done. But you've written... Uh, did you write the De Café novel? I piece? did. Yeah. And I, it's the one we play now, the version we do now is called De Café Nado again. And I always dedicated it to you <laughs> whenever we play. And I was going to do that tonight, but you're not. You, no. We're playing here at this uh, club in Oslo called Her Nilsson. Which and is where we're sitting now. Yeah, that's that's why there's a little bit of background noise. So but we can, we can uh, play that piece uh, from one of your CDs. We can put that on the podcast now. Sure. So the listener can listen a little bit. That would be cool. Yeah. yeah. people listen to your music in general is it spotify or youtube or all about all, all of the above yeah. i'm i'm out on all the digistations i'm i'm in america called cd baby and they have like contacts with the, all the digistations so i just give them the products yeah. and then they they spread it so they take care of it. and they're in i have a large youtube channel I was getting a nice little following yeah you know there's a lot of cool old stuff there yeah from the old days all the old and the new yeah <laughs> did you ever expect to uh, be played on a coffee channel no <laughs> never never thought that was gonna i never thought about that i thought that was a cool idea yeah i mean uh, the reason why well i like your music like i grew up with it so for me it's kind of a, a no-brainer to use your music right. and well, uh, especially I because i don't have to pay <laughs> uh, yeah well that was one of the reasons you don't have to license it yeah you know no, but um, uh, I think it's really nice, and uh, there's a lot of nice music, and it goes really well with, um, especially if you film from like farms and stuff. It, it's really uh -huh. some of the music is really like filmatic. It is. I've just finished the symphony. Oh, really? Again? Yes. Yes. So, I've written some cello concertos, oboe pieces, and other symphony poems, and this and that. And this is my first symphony, and. Um, it's it's an undertaking to write a symphony, yeah. Yeah, but I've always been interested in that kind of music and, yeah. and very interested in conductors and composers from that whole romantic era up to today, actually with the modern folk glass and all that stuff. So, but that's that's a little side geschäft that I do next to all the stuff I have to do to survive. Yeah, <laughs> but um, 
yeah, I guess it's hard to be a, a niche musician. Uh, just like it's kind of hard to be a niche coffee business as well, like yeah, because it's not for everyone. And if it was commercial, like everyone would spend money on it. But uh, right. uh, there, there is a reason why it's niche, uh, because uh, a lot of people uh, just don't get it or are not interested, or you know. Uh, right. But um, well, for me, one of the niche things that happened for me was that you know, and anybody that studies classical music and are a trombone player and are you know, good ears and good technique and stuff can pretty much, if they put their nose to the grindstone, can achieve becoming a professional classical musician. Yeah. Is it well paid? No. Um, is it satisfying at least 10 out of 30 weeks in the year? I would say probably yes. Yeah. Um, for me, this whole big band thing started by a it was like a fluke. It was like my dad actually brought me to a big band concert in Denmark. I think I must have been nine or ten years old. Um, and it was Clark Terrace Big Band. And there was an old black trombone player called um, uh, Richard Boone. Hmm. And he and Clark Terry, they started the scat singing. And it was such an entertainment thing. And then after little by little, I started writing these things. A few years later, I started writing these things that was typical could be for a more modern big band thing. And then I discovered very quickly that writing a symphony piece will take maybe, if you're even lucky enough to get it performed, it will take maybe years mm. to get one performance out of it. And the payment is nowhere near what you can live off. As big band charts, there are so many community big bands, semi-professional big bands, professional big bands around in all of Europe and America, and they're all like 17 to 20 people large. So when you write a composition and your name is up on the right corner, there's 17 people that all knows who you are. Yeah. And they all have 10 friends. Yeah. So now there's 170 people that knows who you are. Yeah. So the spreading of your name if you do a good job and then if you go do seminars with this on top of that so you really ingrain what you're doing and what you're standing for and how you can make an ensemble sound good all began to snowball yeah and then it became like a brand yeah this so is very interesting because it's very parallel to how I've been working with my own brand which is obviously my name uh, at the moment but um uh, we have never like bought a commercial in a magazine, which you know right. most co coffee companies they do that because it's easy. I've always been kind of more interested in being at events, not necessarily serving restaurant people because they might already know who we are. Right. I don't go to coffee events and serve coffee to coffee people because they don't buy coffee; they have their own coffee. So that's like preaching to the choir. Exactly. So what we do is the, we say yes to events where we can. We can serve our coffee uh, to people who might never had have had our coffee before, and if they drink sense. the coffee and if they like it, our name is on the cup. Uh, you know, they then they will tell you know and start buying coffee, spreading the word. And they have ten friends that has ten friends. Yeah, so it's the word of mouth, and it, it takes so much time and so much effort, and also teaching is part of that. I've right. always been. I thought that was a very smart move that you did uh, when you came back and, and won the world championship, that you came back and you started teaching. Uh, than giving seminars at the 7-Eleven and, and yeah. other stores. 
I thought that was a great idea because most people keep the, their cards close to their chest, but they gain nothing by doing no, that. No, no, exactly. Like spreading the knowledge only grows the market for us. Sure, and, uh, absolutely. Makes total sense. I think uh, the more people know about a product, the more they appreciate it. Uh, yeah. Whether it's music or coffee or... Yeah, yeah, no, it's very parallel. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so that became a niche. And then I do uh, that sheet music thing that I sell online. And I just today, you know, there's orchestras and big bands. You know, I sit there in the hotel room on the airport and I just ship it out. I have it on the FTP site, just downloaded to my phone. I see the money come in. I send the sheet music <laughs> out. Yeah. So you're multiple multiple businesses in not just playing a trombone. No, exactly. Yeah. But but I always also thought that um, I figured out that the better trombone player I became, the better a writer I became, and the better a writer I became, the better a trombone player I became. So yeah. it kind of, and the same thing with conducting, that it follows each other. Um, we have, uh, you know, with the, with the symphony orchestra, it was like when I decided not to be the trombone player in the symphony orchestra anymore, I did that for many years. Uh, <laughs> they started calling me as a conductor. Yeah. And then when you've sat in the orchestra for many years and you watch the conductors come in week after week and you see some of them are fantastic and some of them are maybe not so fantastic, uh, you figure out what works and what does not work. Yeah. But when they ask me to become the conductor, you have to do some thinking. There's some philosophy you have to do in order to figure out how you're going to make this work. Mm. And so my philosophy turned out to be somewhat like uh, a symphony orchestra consists of a group of academical people that after an audition voluntarily sits down and submits themselves to a totalitarian system. <laughs> That's the way a symphony orchestra works. And then the question is, who am I in the middle of this? Yeah. And am I particularly dictatorial or am I more uh, looking to have authority? Well, I'm not typically dictatorial Toscanini kind of guy. Oh, depends. If you ask your kids, maybe. <laughs> uh, no, actually, I don't think. But I, if you ask some of my fellow musicians, yeah. sometimes I can be. But I think I'm more looking to have authority. And then the question is, how do you gain authority? Know your stuff. Yeah. yeah that's and important. then it happens very naturally if you are the orchestrator of a lot of the material that you're going to perform because yeah. you've already spent hours on, on writing this yeah that's the, the same as you if you're studying a score yeah so then you come there and you do know your stuff and then of course there's a good portion of people's skills that you have to treat people with the respect that they did to serve being at the job where they are all smart people yeah. academically trained so it is a very interesting concept of symphony orchestra or any orchestras for that matter because it is consisting of very smart people mm. and there are some role rules unwritten rules and there's is it me and them or is it us or is it i mean there's a whole a bunch of human interactions and we're talking about emotions yeah you know we're trying to get people to make emotional judgments on what they're going to perform and how some people get nervous some, you know how do you make people feel more at ease are you the guy that can make them feel more at ease yeah or, or do you make them feel too much at ease? You know, so there's a whole bunch of spectrums here that, that has, has to be, and for every orchestra you walk into, it will be different. Mm. And uh, my job with Donna Summer was to rehearse um, her hired musician for the evening separate. My rhythm section was always with us. Mm. I say my rhythm section because it was basically, I was their boss. Yeah. <laughs> and. Um, and we have backup singers. So when they were sleeping in their hotel rooms, 
our percussion player came to keep time mm. through the orchestra rehearsal. I would then talk through the scores and parts and say blah, 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 blah. I had a four-hour rehearsal. And after four hours of rehearsal, we would go in to do a sound check. Now the room section is on, on the stage. I would get the orchestra placed up on stage. We would run one or two numbers without the backup singers or Donna. Then Donna would come in and the backup singers, and then we would run uh, a couple of songs, and that would be it. Mm. And, the, and a few hours later, we would play a, a two-hour show. Yeah. As if these orchestra mu musicians had been with us for years. Yeah. And the audience would never know whether these were people we toured with or came in this morning. or yeah. And that was my job to make sure. And sometimes I had to fire people. And sometimes I had to fire the people if it was a musician that was the contractor. Mm. So he then chose to sit on both sides of the table by being both the contractor for the musicians and hiring himself <laughs> to do the job. And if he couldn't do the job and I had to fire him, who am I firing? Yeah. Musician or the or contractor? The, yeah. <laughs> you know, so there was there was some interesting consolations happening now and then, uh, but in general it was it was a hard job. But but it, I did it with ease. I had I had fun doing it. And mm. I knew what I was doing and I knew all the music backwards and inwards. And what does it take to be great? At what you do? Persistence. Don't listen to all the people that says that you can't do it. If you think you can do it, be persistent and uh, believe in yourself. And um, it was interesting when I got the Donna Summer gig, I never told anybody in Norway. Yeah, I heard about it many years later. But, yeah. yeah, I never said anything to anybody because Norway has a tendency to judge, prejudge, mm. before they really know what it's all about. And I, I, I had enough going on in Norway. I was conducting Le Miserable. I was, you know, doing other theater works and TV. I, I had enough. I didn't need any judgment calls on anything. I was comfortable the way it was. So this just became an extra thing that I did, and I think it took almost five or six years before that kind of leaked out. Interesting. Yeah, persistence is uh, definitely a key, and I think consistency as well. Like, uh, yeah. And there's a, a quite a bit of loneliness in that. Yeah. Uh, and, and you have to be willing to endure all that, the criticism, the, the people's downplaying of who you are, and also the hypocrisy of when, when you actually break through and then the people that actually criticize you are coming and <laughs> they want to work for you. Yeah. Um, I've seen a lot of all, all those aspects. Uh, it, it teaches you a lot about human beings and and, and therefore I, I will say one of the things I've, I've been lucky with is that I have always had a group of people around me um, in the different projects I do that I know I can trust. Mm. And one of the things that I trust with them is the way they treat me when they're not in the same room as me, mm. you know, and towards other people that I would never backstab anybody I have no reason to do so and if I find that some of my newer incoming workers had that tendency of, of bragging about something or, or that backstab I would get rid of them pretty quickly because yeah. the rule is that if shit hits the fan over time it never gets better it always just gets worse yeah <laughs> 
I think that's uh, one rule we have in our business is that uh, we should never talk negative about anyone no. because so what are you going to gain? Especially our competitors because they're you know doing the same as you and yeah. working as hard as you and they are promoting the same products as you. And yeah. So uh, you know there is more than enough room for everyone. I think there in is. Market. Yeah. There is absolutely, and uh, I think it's impo uh, uh, very important to be having this positive attitude. I might have been a little tough on the edges when I was very young in the beginning. I had some good people telling me, there was a very f famous guy in Norway called Eglimon Iversen and some other people with him um, that now and then took me aside and said, listen, you know, if yeah. I stepped a little bit over the line. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and so luckily they saw that the potential I had was something that could benefit the uh, mankind hopefully of yeah. some sort and and they took the time and energy to to try to steer me right mm. and uh, you know it's not the simple you, you're out there on your own trying to figure out the ways and there's no abc in there nobody can write this down in the book and say this is how it is because we're all different everybody has a different thing going and yeah so you need the help you can get for sure so uh, would you say that uh one of the reasons why you have such high standards and morals is because you want to be in this business for a long time? Very much so. Yeah. I learned very quickly because I saw the pop stars coming and going. Yeah. So my question, I didn't want to be a pop star. I wasn't interested in being a superstar in anything. I just wanted to live and do music. That was what I live and for and breathe music. That was what I think I, I had in me. Yeah. And by being the sideman or the conductor or the writer of some sort, you, you have a much more of a longevity in the business than, than if you're a superstar that comes and goes. Yeah. You know. So, and then I was very fortunate to be a sideman of, of such people as Donna Summer yeah. or Blood, Sweat and Tears and all that. So that made me years and years. I also moved to America when I was about 45 and people thought I was nuts. I was making a lot of money in Norway and people thought I was nuts. And people came, well, what am I going to do now when you're moving and this and that? And there was all kinds of stuff like that going on. And to be honest, the first couple of years in, in the States was a little slim, mm. you know. But I, I knew I had to do it for there was several reasons. One of the reasons uh, for me was that being in Norway, which is a great country, although it, the environment is very small. Yeah. And I mean, there's only five million people who live here. So. Right. So it, it, by itself, it, that's what it is. Yeah. And if you tell the joke on television uh, on, the, on the Saturday, it's, it's used up. You yeah. can't use it again. <laughs> you know, in America, you can travel around and tell the same joke for the rest of your life. There's so that's why you moved? Million million. <laughs> well, it, it, you know, it gives you opportunities to do stuff yeah. uh, over a long period of time. Uh, and at 45, you know, if you look at the, most of my colleagues in Norway now, if they were living of it as, as freelancers, very few freelancers that are past 50 in this yeah. country and um, and it has its natural courses um, in America you find freelancers that are 70 years old if you can play you're welcome yeah you know it doesn't matter how old you are as long as you can deliver yeah you know? yeah for sure I mean that's also one thing that I say in, in my business like we our youngest worker now is 16 and of course she's not working full-time or anything but she is super super good mm -hmm. uh, at working and uh, you know I don't care how old you are as long as you're mature enough to do the job you know that's all 
Yeah, that's all we need. So I saw that it was possible to prolong my career also because I had the opportunity to, to work with these people. Yeah. Uh, that was there was many reasons why I moved, but that was one of the reasons that. Uh, and I, I guess you were thinking a little bit more long term than you know from day to day. You were right, kind of making a plan and. Yeah, you, you gotta know. have a long term plan yeah. and, and a short term plan uh, and the, and a no plan plan. And I knew you would say this because this has uh, is also something that has stuck in my head for so many years. You've said two things that uh, I've really followed notoriously. One is don't put all your eggs in one basket. Sure which means have more than one leg to stand on. So that's how I set up my business. We did education. We did, uh, which, you know, for me, education is also a marketing Absolutely. thing. And then we did the roasted coffee that we sell in bags mm -hmm. in other stores. And then, of course, we have the coffee shop. And then I did consulting. And and just now, in, during Corona, we lost all our wholesale, for instance. So all the restaurants that we sell coffee to right. closed down. Sure. But we were able to survive because we were selling coffee online to consumers. The coffee shop was still able to be open, you know. Right. So we survived as a company because I followed that plan. Right. And I did see not many coffee companies, but I did see the ones that didn't have an online store, for instance. They suffered a lot. Right. And uh, also the long-term plan uh, for me has been always uh, very important. And I remember before I opened my business, I actually sat down on the beach a whole summer. It was a very nice summer. See, uh, you were not in the office. No. Exactly. <laughs> I was uh, smoking cigars and uh, drinking beer and being creative, but I was actually working on my business plan mm -hmm. and thinking through all these kind of basic questions like, who am I going to sell to? Who is my competitor? You know, how am I going to distribute coffee? How am I going to market the coffee? All these kind of simple questions. And then also, why do we exist as a business? Right. Uh, what, what's the reason why I want to do this? And uh, I've written down five things that uh, was kind of... First of all is the vision. We, I wanted to be one of the best coffee roasters in the world. And you can't measure that. So that's a constant kind of... Uh, that's like saying, I want to be the best remote player in the world. Yeah, that, exactly. To me, that doesn't exist. No, no, no. You know? It doesn't. But it motivates me to... Absolutely. For greatness. Right. Um, and compare yourself with the best that you can see around at yeah. least and then see where it brings you. And then we, we wrote uh, f kind of a couple of things, the reason why we exist. And the first one is that our company should be a contribution to the coffee industry. Mm -hmm. And good. we do so by... Ecological. Uh, yeah, we, we try to inspire other people. We try to teach other people. And I do see that you do a lot of the same things. Mm -hmm. uh, th you know, you don't have to go to a university in Norway to, to teach, but you no. still do it. Right. So, the way I see, I see, I've always seen that the, the whole business is changing so rapidly, and it's a nature of the music industry has always been changing this yeah. fast. I mean, you go back to the 1920s, and you had a movie, they had like 50,000 movie piano players running around playing <laughs> silent movies, right? And then suddenly there was sound. Yeah. 25,000 jumped off a bridge and killed themselves, yeah. and the other 25,000 became film composer. I mean, yeah. just as a, a rough example. So it's always been in a, in a vast change, as long as we can remember. So, so biting onto the existing way that we do music, whether it's teaching universities or whether it's recording music, or that, that's an absolute thing. It, mm. it, it doesn't exist in my head. My head, it, it will always evolve, and I try to stay on top of electronics and, and all the, the new stuff. But 
also choose what I'm not good at, like beats and, and, and yeah. hip hop and stuff. It's really not my thing. I think I'm more of an orchestral uh, instrumentalist, uh, acoustic instruments, blah, blah, blah. That, yeah. that seems to be more where I come from. But the thing is that whether you teach, if you keep teaching the old way in universities, I mean, not so much in Norway because we have a state paid fund universities. Yeah. Yeah. But in America, a, a university. Uh, a year in, in music university costs between sixty-five thousand and seventy-five thousand mm, dollars. That's a lot so of money. That's a lot of money. Yeah. So if you're you're done with four years of that, you owe between two hundred and two hundred and fifty thousand mm. dollars. Now, what kind of job can you get so you can pay back your mortgage or your loan? And if you're in the military band, they pay maybe thirty-five, forty-five thousand dollars, which is barely to survive on. Yeah. And if you have a big debt like that. Uh, you're no not going to make it. Yeah. So one of the things that keeps happening more and more in America is that um, a lot of kids that can't afford to go that route, with the, they don't have the rich parents, and, mm. you know, so they need to kind of figure out how I, I got to have this flame in me. I want to be a clarinet player, just to say. So they look up the clarinet player that is their favorite online. Yeah. And then they look to also take music theory online. So some of these conservatories around, they have like, you have to play recorder, you have to sing in a choir. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm sure you'll, you'll learn something, yeah. but, but for that kind of money, really? Yeah. And, and they have to do other things in the conservatory that maybe is not what you want to be paying for for the rest of your life. Yeah. So they seek out these one people, person things, and they contact, I get contacted all the time about people um, that wants to take, I have a guy now in, in P Pittsburgh that uh, is taking composition lessons with me. Every lesson we take is three hours. Yeah. And he's like moving fast ahead. And then he might do that with the instrument he's playing. He's a string player. So he may, I don't know if he has a string teacher that teaches him, you know, very intensive. So that when he has done four years of spending the money he's waiting tables on, mm. doing this, he comes out after four years debt-free. He has no paper. Yeah. But the only reason you need that paper is to have a pay scale if you get a teaching job. Yeah. <laughs> so if you start music to become a musician, yeah. why would you want to... You see what I'm saying? Because yeah, yeah. it doesn't mean that you can't teach, but you can't necessarily teach in a university school, but you can still teach online. Yeah, I I've, haven't I've gone to university, you know. Uh, right. I just went to high school, I guess you call it, uh, yeah. and finished that. And uh, I have never taken any certification except one in coffee. Right. Uh, because, well, I tried to go to one for many, many years ago, and we ended up teaching the teacher right. uh, how right. to. Right. So right. it was kind of because it's very young industry you know uh, but now it's a little bit different and people have all these kind of papers but they that doesn't mean that they actually know anything no exactly uh, and it's the same in in, in in any school in anything yeah. because you have a phd in something doesn't mean that you know all the other things that you need to know no you need experience right for sure and that that's where you see a lot of uh, young kids when they come to the school and then i come in there and i give this talk which is completely different from anything they learn in that class yeah they are so hungry because <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's amazing to me to see how they react and, and they're coming up and they're, you can see that they're so eager and, you know, you see the eyes glitter, you know. Yeah. 
and uh, because they they have the teacher that tells them about you know terms like A minor seven flat five to D seven flat nine yeah. goes to G minor goes to C is it to two five sequence and it's like you know they talk about yeah but that's not really how you make a career in music no. and uh, it's helpful but but does it really and after they're examined out they're they're on their own and if they haven't in the meantime figured out I can I can give you an example of a Norwegian guy that I respect tremendously. Uh, his name is Vega Lamos. And he started the uh, Royal Academy of Music in, in, um, in Oslo uh, before I moved. So it must have been late 90s somewhere. Uh, it's a four-year study. And he got in there as an alto sax, classical alto sax player. Um, he immediately decided that the classical repertoire for alto sax was not what he wanted to deal with because mm. he didn't cared that much about it it was like used up if you will so what he did was he contacted me Vida Johansson Björn Kusen great Norwegian all the classical composers as well and commissioned them to write him pieces nice this guy is now the head of the record label uh, what is the name of that record the classical record label with the Oslo Philharmonie is on everybody all the classical things Lavel Okay, I haven't heard L -A -V -V or single V. Maybe. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not sure. I think it's Lavo is what it is. So that's where he ended up doing all this by being creative and by challenging the system, by following what he wanted to do, searching for grants, you know, while he was in school, mm. doing all this stuff. And just found his niche and, and became this record label guy for the classical industry it's yeah. like fantastic find you know. your niche is a yeah good find thing. a niche and i'm sure that there was a lot of people that was not really understanding what he had in his head yeah and then that what he wanted to do and i recommend that you know if you have that kind of thinking do it yeah don't think about it do it because it, otherwise it's too late it reminds me of uh, something that is in our family culture my dad has always said kind of taught me this in, indirectly by you know if we went on vacation and we saw uh, everyone going to a restaurant we would go to another restaurant yeah <laughs> and he always said you know don't you don't, you don't no don't follow the crowd you do right. your own thing right. and i think you're a little bit the same oh, and i'm absolutely. definitely the same as well oh yeah you find your own ways and uh, i actually get motivated by doing something different and you know showing that there can be a different way you right. don't have to necessarily do and it can be challenging doing that because yeah. you may endure stuff that necessarily wasn't to your benefit but in the long run when you look back at it it might have been to your benefit one good example and this is very kind of basic in coffee but a good example is when i opened my company everyone told me oh you need to roast your coffee darker and you know you need to have uh, different products for different people i didn't believe in that i said like that's I wanna... like trying to make everybody your friend exactly that's yeah. exactly yeah, what no, i thought that doesn't work and i thought you know i'm gonna make a product that i like Right. And if I like it, there's a chance that other people will like it. It's going to reflect my taste. And that's basically why we've been so consistent for 16 years, because I do the quality control every week. Right. And it's my taste that is reflected in the coffee. I buy the coffees and I set That's something profiles. that you're saying, which is also incredibly important, quality control. Mm. So I've been very fortunate to have managers that has that ability. Not every manager has that. Um, but the managers that says yes on your behalf to a job that they know that the client will provide 
all things needed in order to make this the quality that it's supposed to be. Mm. Because there are clients that are coming in and cheapo depoing everything and skiffing over this and hopping over that and pretend they didn't know and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and suddenly you're standing there with all the eggs on yeah, your face. Looking and it, like it an sounds, idiot. Yeah, right, yeah. All right. So the, the quality control, securing the quality control, every record, I have about 15 CDs out now, and eight of them with Big Ben and some small ones and some orchestra ones and this and that. And one thing I can say, you may dislike the music. I'm okay with that. That's mm. fine. But one thing I can say is that every product that we came out with is high quality. Yeah. And whether you like it, the music content, that's a whole different story. I but mean, uh, different strokes for different folks. Like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm completely comfortable with people not liking my coffee. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm not, the same I'm way not trying to make everyone like it, you know. It's, no. I'm making I, a product that I, some people like. I told my wife the other day, that uh, there's been some situations and sometimes uh, I, I told her about a situation that somebody else was in and it was very uncomfortable for that person to continue working in that situation. And I said to, to my wife that uh, I've always had the philosophy, if I'm not wanted, I don't want to be there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's very, to me, this is totally natural. Yeah. You don't want me, I'm out of your head. Yeah, yeah. I don't want you. So how do you develop after so many years? You've been a musician for how many years now? 40, right. 50 years? Kinda. Yeah, pretty much 40, 45, yeah. somewhere. Um, pretty much what you, you touched base on earlier, and this was so, something my mom actually looked me, your grandmother, that not only do you have to have more than one foot to stand on, but you should always, if you're working with one thing right now, you should always be on another project at the same time. Hmm. So that when when you're done with that project, you don't create a vacuum. Yeah. But you're already on the next whatever travel, or you know. So right now, for instance, uh, we've been working with this quintet thing. Um, I'm actually going to play a Broadway show when I come home. At the same time, I've already written a Christmas album for a Norwegian crooner that's coming out this Christmas. Oh, nice, yeah. For, uh, with all seven, or, or like, um, Bing Crosby-ish style of orchestrations, because the young people who buys records now, they don't know what that is. Yeah. And this young crooner is 22 years old, but he has a 70-year-old soul. I'm not going to mention names or anything, but it's coming out, and we recorded the rhythm section in Norway, the horns, I did all the trombone parts uh, in my house, and then the trumpet player over there, and the trumpet, he's out with Nile Rogers, and the sax player, same thing. And then we're going to do the strings in, in Eastern Europe somewhere, nice. and then he's going to do all the singing on top of it. He's already done scratch things, so I know what this is going to be. And I think he is the kind of guy that is going to be able to actually profile this. So that's the thing that's coming out in, at Christmas. Yeah, you know? and you've never done this before. And I've never done Christmas albums no. like that before for anybody. So, so that's a whole, whole different scenario. And they called me up and, and they had a budget and they say, would you be interested in doing this? And I said, this sounds really interesting. Yeah. Let me hear something he's done because I wanted to hear the quality yeah. again. Yeah. I have to ensure the quality in the bottom of what, I mean, I know what I can deliver will be quality, mm. but I'm not so sure that he can carry it. Yeah. So I need to make sure that at least there's a chance that he can carry it. So that we can hopefully make a, a very popular Christmas album with with this guy, yeah. and I think that's what's going to happen. To be honest, um, I've heard him do some different things, and and I have high hopes for this guy. And mm. I'm usually pretty right. 
I think uh, I'm thinking of it now uh, during this conversation. Like th this is probably something that I've uh, uh, learned from uh, not just you, but uh, also other people in the restaurant industry and stuff. Like your name is the quality stamp on your products, right. and you have you have to make sure that it's good every single time. Right. Otherwise, and, it, and it's it's, it's your imperative career. Imperative. Yeah. That you try to avoid any kind of bad stamps whatever yeah. that might be mm. because one bad stamp is like two years of good stamps yeah and you really can't tolerate much yeah scandals or or sloppiness or yeah in in, in my industry like bad recordings or oh he's affiliated with that oh my god no you know that kind of vibe but people associate those kind of things very quickly yeah and you kind of have to Tried. I mean, I was asked to do a TV show uh, very recently, and I didn't answer them right away. And then I called some friends of mine here in Norway. They called me in America, but I, it was here in Norway. And I asked some friends of mine what this TV show was all about, if they'd seen any episodes or anything. I just did my own research to find out. And the judgment call was that no you shouldn't be a part of this <laughs> you know and then it's easy to say no yeah uh, i have nothing to gain by you know i'm not i got nothing to prove the only thing you need to do is keep up the quality yeah and if you start sinking into this quagmire of popular bs yeah <laughs> it's a quagmire it's hard to get out of and then you get associated with that yeah and you don't really prolong your your quality of products by doing it do you have a process for doing those judgments or is it just a gut feeling because for me it's very often i just trust my gut i think feeling. it started as a gut feeling when yeah. i was young that i don't want to be associated with this this is not my bag this is not what i no this yeah. is not me this is you know um little by little when when you then get involved in different projects and people are hiring musicians that you are not in control of yeah and you find out they were not benefiting the total of this or whatever, then you kind of like you, you scope out the group of people. Is this, this like minded people gravitate toward yeah. each other? Yeah, yeah. And there's Always. true very much truth to that. Yeah. Um, Blood, Sweat and Tears was a great example. I came from Norway, heard them when I was sixteen. The other guy's a Puerto Rican trumpet player. He's actually the trombone player with Gloria Estefan. Oh, nice. And all the trumpet <laughs> solo is also Teddy Millett, is yeah. his name. And then you had Steve Jankowski, who's been my best friend for, since 84. We went to Manhattan School of Music together and did my master's. And his friend is Tom Timko. So whenever I did conducting Donna Summer in New York on the East Coast, I would hire these two guys. Yeah. They knew Teddy. Then we did a Donna Summer with David Foster. Uh, it was uh, for a Muhammad Ali event uh, for Parkinson. Yeah. Um, and Gloria Estefan was there. And Donna Summer was there. And then I played on their bands, and they played on my bands in order to, you know, save the extra musicians. And then the four of us found out, gee, we didn't even have to rehearse. Yeah. This <laughs> just sounds like four. So the four of us played with Blood, Sweat, and Tears was like the blast. Yeah. Because it was just, we phrased the same way. And, and I'm sure Blood, Sweat and Tears has had great horn sections and great soloists. But as a section, I've never heard any recordings with a section that was that tight yeah. as the four of us. 
And that's why we lasted eight years, I think, because we really enjoyed each other's company yeah. and we were good friends and it sounded great. But New Jersey, Puerto Rico, Norway, how much different can yeah, it yeah. be? And then you gather and you're all in the same like-minded set of mind. Mm. It's like pretty impressive, actually. That's so cool. I actually found that uh, before coming back to making decisions whether you should do a job or not, you know, I before I also trusted my gut feeling. But uh, after I hired uh, Cecilia, my wife, uh, to help me organize the company a little bit, we've actually taken written down on paper my, my thoughts in my head. It's good. So we made a very kind of clear strategy for all the employees in the company to mm -hmm. read and understand, and so they can take good calls you know and right. good decisions based no, on that so i don't have to anymore. right it's very important that that you're able to give the people that work with you that they see the picture yeah and 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 understand where you're going to go with this and yeah. what, what it means because we have a tendency to assume that people see and understand that yeah. but they don't no no you, you assume because you have it in your head right but but they everyone can't else read your no mind. exactly right so <laughs> no that's very smart very smart to to write it down and actually put it in, in, in a context where they can follow what's going on uh it's been over an hour so let's try to wrap this up a little we bit can, i absolutely. could sit here and talk with you for ages um but uh one question that i'm wondering because you're obviously one of my role models uh who are your role role models wow that's that's interesting i think my grandfather was uh, quite a bit of a role model he um he made some choices uh, in his life and uh, that was very uh, had a big impact of the rest of the family mm. uh, in terms of uh, when the Second World War broke out uh, he was a conductor he was Danish but he was conducting uh, the Bremen Stadt Orchestra and Goering came to one of the concerts they were playing Tchaikovsky's Pathetic Symphony and in those days most of the orchestras was Jewish mm. and uh, in the intermission, he took the whole orchestra down in the basement and he basically said, after this concert, we're dissolving Bremen Staats Orchestra and you guys are leaving the country. Mm. So he um, kind of chose that side yeah. of the, the Allies' side. And then he also became uh, an inventor who invented um, the, coal, the black coal mass that you had in the tubes that we later on saw in televisions and radio oh, really? amplifier. That's grandpa. <laughs> I didn't know that. And that's your old grandpa, uh, <laughs> you know. Um, and, but he didn't invent it for music or television, which was not even invented in those days. He invented it so they could enhance the Allied spy listening devices. Oh, nice. <laughs> so, so he was a smart cookie and uh, very knowledgeable in music. He took lessons with the, the very famous German conductor, uh, Furtwängler, and um, also became the head of the conducting of the Danish radio orchestra. He won that competition, but later on resigned because the musicians were drinking beer during mm. the rehearsals so, he, he, <laughs> so again the quality he was the, the quality guy he wouldn't yeah. have he wouldn't see that yeah. so and i've had many conversations with him um and listened to classical orchestra music with him and then and he's also heard me coming from norway with an orchestra actually they came to a concert and uh, i think we played uh, uh, berlioz uh, symphony fantastique 
and then he came to the concert and we played Grieg A minor concerto that was a, a Danish pianist playing with a Norwegian it was interesting in Romsted in Denmark wow yeah, yeah. where we actually grew up um, so I, I'd say that in, in a large portion him and my mom yeah. who was a very tough cookie yeah <laughs> uh, she took there was no taking no for an answer you had to do what you had to do and she was also a great concert singer yeah and we actually have some CDs that we created with her old wax records. Yeah, I've got one actually. Yeah, yeah, that's very so, nice. So, so you know, and, and all that, that. So when I decided I wanted to become a musician, and I presented that to my mom, there was no issue. Mm. Like in in a lot of families, that becomes like a big issue. Oh my God, what are you going to do, a musician? Yeah. You know, like, but she did advise me to take some education in music in order to have something to fall back on as. And I think that was smart in general, mm. um, not necessarily to become a teacher, but just to really know your stuff. One of the reasons I also moved to America was that I felt I needed to learn more. Yeah. Um, I was here, I was doing all the top stuff, and, and, and I f felt in many ways that I was boxed in. There's a certain groups of, of classical musicians that would not approach me because I was too much in the commercial world yeah, yeah, yeah. and all that. So you get boxed in. Yeah. So by going to the United States and taking a master's degree there, I met a whole bunch of other people that had a whole different outlook. Yeah. And I got involved on that side, which was completely different from what I did here. Mm. And, you know, that, that take the chance and go out there and really live I try everything you want to try yeah you know? so in the end you can't say you regret anything you know I think also like uh, having a sound education whether it's uh, official or you know uh, you do it yourself by reading right. books and stuff sure uh, makes it so much easier to be creative in uh, in an industry if you have like a solid base of knowledge in uh, then it's so and much easier to be creative on top of that and i also think one very important thing is that money should not dictate what you end up i mean it will in to a certain degree but try not to make money be be the yeah. leading horse uh, yeah the ideas funny. be the leading horse the money will come yeah. if your ideas are good enough I'm actually not very money-driven myself. No, I, I, I know it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> all right, one all maybe good. one last question, and uh, your wife is coming. My auntie Gloria. Hello, hello. Hey, Gloria. Uh, <laughs> who inspires you today? Like, uh, do you see to other businesses or uh, artists, or is there anything you? How do you get inspiration? I think I get inspirations by hearing great stuff. Um, great performers great conductors great composers and whether they're dead or whether they're alive today mm. it doesn't really matter uh, the presentation reading their biographies or seeing youtube documentaries or um all that kind of stuff inspires me mm. you know um if if i don't write something for a while uh and which happens to all composers that we, we get times where we really don't have any ideas yeah because we've been so busy doing all things and suddenly that step ahead is not there anymore and then instead of trying to force that i rather study uh, other people's work and and listen to other people and performers as well and, and or it doesn't even have to be in music it can also be in any other art form so yeah. see a play or, or hear uh, a choir
choir or performance of any sort, you know, paintings, you know, anything that is great. Yeah, I agree. I, I take a lot of inspiration from eating good food. Yeah. Meeting producers. Doesn't have to be coffee. It can be, you know, anything. An egg producer or right. You know, it can be uh, listening to music. Oops, I guess we're getting into a sound check. Listening to music, yeah. yeah. Okay, so I think we should wrap it up because right. you're doing the sound check. Beautiful. But thank you so much, Jens, thank for you, joining Tim. us. It's been a pleasure. And for all the listeners, if you want to listen to Jens's music, I think you can find it on Spotify. We will link it in our uh, Instagram posts, as yeah, always. I think there's a YouTube channel as well. YouTube channel. Yep. And uh, make sure to check out uh, the old videos because they are so much fun. Very cool. <laughs> thank you so much, Jens, and thank you for all the listeners for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode. Ciao, ciao.